invite you to open your Bible tonight to Psalm 53. Psalm 53, as we're going through the Psalms, evening services. It's a short psalm with the basic truth, but a necessary one. Psalm 53, a mascal of David. Some think that maybe he wrote this uh, following his uh, engagement with Nabal, if you remember that story. Um, Nabal Nabal is the Hebrew word for fool. And uh, so the fool, uh, the Nabal says in his heart, there is no God. Uh, Nabal, of course, wasn't a named fool, probably uh, most likely by his parents. Uh, Parents wouldn't usually do that. Um, He he gained it the old-fashioned way, right? He earned it. And uh, and it's very possible that David is reflecting on the absolute folly of Nabal then has written uh, this. Commentators believe that as well because uh, 52 refers to event right before Nabal, 53, Nabal, 54, an event right after Nabal. So, and you can see it in, in the headings there. Let's, uh, let's give our attention then to Psalm 53. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are in great terror where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you've inspired these words long ago. We ask that you would... Breathe them again into our hearts and minds so that, Lord, the truth that they contain would be good food for our soul, rich food that would nourish and sustain and show us spirit through these words, the beauty and the wonder of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. One of the benefits of going on family reunions is it gives you uh, ample fodder for sermon illustrations, and I was... Uh, one of the things that happens at a family reunion, you notice um, in an unusual way maybe certain uh, family traits, uh, mannerisms, right? Some cousins will, will, will say something in a certain way. Like, that sounds exactly like so-and-so. You'll see uh, um, uh, features, uh, appearance, uh, right? How people look and how they talk, the voice. Uh, there are distinguishing marks, uh, true for every family, and that's certainly true for the Van Dyke family. I don't, don't know how many times people have said, uh, meeting me, oh, you're a Van Dyke. Um, there, are, there, are, there are traits. Well, uh, one of the things that Van, the Van Dyke uh, family loves to do, and I, and I enjoy this so much, is uh, to sing. So we do a lot of singing at reunions. Uh, in fact, at one point, we had about 20 uh, guys up front, sort of an impromptu men's chorus, and, uh, and, and it was just it, it just is such a joy to sing with cousins and, and uh, some uncles and then some of the younger guys. Well, I was talking to uh, one of the daughters of, uh, a daughter of one of my cousins. Uh, she's a student at Grand Valley. She's a music major. 
And I was just sharing how much I enjoy singing um, with the family and with the guys. And, And I said to her, I said, you know, there's a distinct Van Dyke tonal quality that I can't quite describe. And she, uh, she smiled wryly and said, uh, strained? <laughs> it wasn't exactly the word I was looking for, but, uh, but I, I had to admit it fit. Well, our text uh, this evening uh, speaks of a distinguishing characteristic of the human family, uh, the human race. The children of men, as a race, as descendants of Adam, we share in this unique universal, defining, spiritual trait. We share a deep denial of God and a subsequent embrace of evil. We share a universal denial of the greatest reality and most essential being. We, we pretend He does not exist and consequently cast ourselves and throw ourselves into what he forbids. Uh, We are, by definition, a race of fools. Uh, If you know your Psalter, you you will know that Psalm 53 is actually a, uh, it's nearly identical to Psalm 14. It's it's almost word for word, just a few very minor uh, changes. Uh, scholars have questioned how that happened. Some think maybe a scholar, uh, some scribe fell asleep and inserted this uh, when it was already in the Psalter. Well, uh, I believe the, uh, the Holy Spirit has, uh, has directed the writing, and, uh, and, I, and so I, I, I'm not going to go with that theory. I think uh, Rick Phillips is on to uh, uh, the, the truth of it when he says one of, the, uh, one of the ways that the Bible emphasizes a point is by repetition. It's one of the most common uh, Hebraic ways of emphasizing something. So holy, holy, holy. Uh, it's, it's repetition for the sake of, of emphasis. And um, Psalms 14 and 53 are repeated again in Scripture when Paul takes it up in Romans chapter 3. And so you have these identical words uh, in three different places. And I, and I, I think the Holy Spirit is trying to communicate to us that this is, this is a, a truth that is essential to understanding the gospel. Uh, this is a truth that's essential because they tell us the core problem with humanity. Um, they summarize the universal human condition and the human dilemma and, and, and therefore sets the stage for the essential necessity for a gospel of salvation to be a, a gospel of uh, salvation by grace alone through faith alone. There's nothing, this psalm is telling us, there's nothing in the whole human race that is, uh, that's a foundation to build upon. There's nothing for God to work with. If he's going to save sinners, it must be as a free gift to fools. And so um, that's what we have here, I believe, in Psalm 53 and 14. Just imagine, uh, I think you can catch the sense of this, if you imagine that you're a medical doctor and you're um, treating a patient for a potentially terminal, fatal disease, but the patient isn't taking the medicine. And uh, you ask him, why aren't you taking the medicine? And he says, well, I don't feel that bad. Uh, I don't have any pain, at least most times I don't have much pain, I I feel fine. 
Uh, and I don't like the pills. Uh, they're hard to swallow. They don't taste good. They make me feel a little bit uh, kind of sleepy. Um, and so I don't take them. Uh, well, as a doctor, your only chance of, of, uh, of effectively treating this patient is to sit him down and explain exactly the nature of his disease and what this disease will do to him unless it is treated. And I think in Psalm 53 and 14, and again in Romans chapter 3, that's exactly what the Spirit is doing. Trying to get us to understand the, the seriousness of this condition uh, and what it will do to us and how desperately we need help and then the help that God gives in Christ. And so let's, uh, let's give our attention. I, I, when I preached on this a few years ago, looking at Psalm 14, exegeted sort of verse by verse, I don't want to do that tonight. I'd, I'd rather capture the main, the main uh, point of the psalm and, and, and press that home. So David clearly is in Psalm 53 talking about the fool. In biblical terms, a fool is not someone who's silly, who's just foolish, making unwise decisions. But the fool is the man who is spiritually deluded. He is spiritually ignorant, and because of that, he's morally deviant and intentionally defiant towards God. The fool says in his heart, down where he lives, down where the, the, the real person dwells, the heart is the wellspring of life, and, and way down there, the fool makes this fundamental um, Confession, uh, profession, declaration, there is no God. Now in, uh, in our English Bibles, uh, we read, there is no God. The words there is don't show up in the Hebrew Bible. They're just put there to make it easier to read. But the, the Hebrew reads, the fool says in his heart, no Elohim, no God. That it's a, it's, it, it's, it's a renunciation of God. I mean, just try to get your brain around that. That the fool in his heart, in his deepest conviction, renounces God. No maker of heaven and earth. No Lord or king or sovereign to obey. No God who fashioned me in his likeness. And has given me everything I have so that there's no one to whom I owe thanksgiving or worship. If you remember in Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God's being poured out because men do not uh, honor God as God or give thanks to him. One of the most fundamental evidence or one of the critical, crucial, whatever word you want to use. One of the, uh, one of the evidences of an atheistic heart is you're not thankful. You just grumble and complain. No God who sees all that I am and all that I do, and no God who's going to hold me accountable. Now, where do we see this, this folly in our world today? Well, it's, it would be easy to point to the atheists, uh, men like Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, uh, Richard Dawkins, and others. Uh, Dawkins, as, as we said this morning, wrote The God Delusion. Um, Hitchens wrote, uh, I'm not going to remember the title. Uh, they're all announcing there is no God. Uh, and the folly of that is just, it's, it's, it's laughably evident. 
Uh, here are these men standing on God's created earth, made by the power of God, in the image of God, surrounded by the works of God's hands, all of which are screaming the reality of God. And, and yet in the face of all that truth and reality, they boldly de declare, without any evidence and contrary to all evidence, there is no God. Isaiah 29, uh, God has a word for atheists. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, the thing, uh, that the thing made should save its maker? He did not make me. You just imagine this little clay pot and looking at the potter and saying, he didn't, he didn't make me. I just happened. Uh, one of the things that um, my daughter Emily, sometimes if we're, if we're just marveling at creation, um, she'll say, isn't evolution amazing? Yeah, it's amazing. It all happened by chance. Well, that's, that's, that's folly, right? And it's particularly foolish when men say it. God didn't make me. I just happened. But it's not just an atheist. We could pin this psalm on atheists, and it'd be an easy thing to do, and, and, and it would be true, but that's not what David is doing. David's indicting everyone. Uh, we see this, this uh, spirit, this foolishness in our secular society. Uh, we're living in an increasingly foolish age. Um, James K., Jamie K. Smith of Calvin College has, has really picked up some of the work of, uh, of Charles uh, Taylor, and, uh, who wrote The Secular Age. Uh, Taylor makes the point that 500 years ago, it would have been impossible for a thinking person to talk about ultimate issues like life and meaning and morality without reference to God. You just couldn't do it. The, 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 the society around you would have laughed at you if, you if you tried to have a meaningful discussion in the public square about these things without reference to God. Well, now it's completely different. Jamie K. Smith points out that people live today with no sense of God. He says, there's, if you talk to people about life and morality and meaning, there's no second floor. There's just nothing up there. That people have conversations about these things with no thought of God, much less reference to Him. In fact, to bring God into the conversation today is seen as offensive and odd. It's changing. Our culture is changing. Uh, if you try to just try to insert God into conversations at work or, uh, or at the park, and you'll find that people, uh, they act like you're, 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 you're not playing fair. That you're introducing something into the topic that doesn't belong there. If we talk about sexuality, if we talk about any of the ills of our day. Right? But if you would mention that the God actually made us male and female, and we need to honor that. It's completely out of line. How dare you bring God into discussion? But again, David isn't just trying to help us understand our, our culture, although it is very helpful to understand. I think if you want to say what's going on in our world... Um, no God philosophy is just becoming more and more um, normal way for people to think. No God, no God, no reference to God. But the psalm um, calls us to examine ourselves. Um, David says that they've all fallen away. That God looks down on the children of men and there's no one who does good. And religion isn't, isn't a help. Paul, uh, in fact, takes this psalm wonderfully in Romans chapter 3. He's been talking about what's wrong with the world. And he talks about the Gentiles in uh, chapters 1 and 2. And, and um, 
The Gentiles are a mess because they have the law written on their heart, but they don't keep it. They suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. Um, that's what's wrong with the Gentiles. And then he goes to the Jews, the, re- the religious people. And he says, you got the law of God also written on your heart, and you have it on tablets of stone. But do you keep it? So you have it. You can point to it. It's read to you every Sabbath. But do you keep it? And the answer, of course, is, well, not actually. No, we don't. So Paul says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Everyone is under sin. The power of sin, the dominion, the condemnation of sin. And religion is no cure. The Jews had the law. They had the prophets. They had the ceremonies. But, but, but that, that religion doesn't make us less needing divine grace. It doesn't give us a leg up on people. In fact, religion can be one of the ways that we, um, one of the ways that we say no God. I, I've been, over the last uh, probably 10 years, uh, following uh, the work of a Christian Smith, Notre Dame. I, he's a sociologist. He's, he spent 15 years um, uh, studying the religious beliefs of American young people, the national youth uh, religion. And what he found was that uh, most professing Christian young people, actually, their faith couldn't, it can't, uh, accurately be called Christian. He, he coined a new word. The faith of most young people is what he calls moral therapeutic deism. Uh, that, uh, the, the idea is that there is a God and he wants us to be moral. He wants us to be good. He wants us to be nice. I, but, but primarily, he's, deism, he, he's removed himself from the sphere. He's not really engaged in this world, but he'll, he's available if you need. So, so being removed, he doesn't really care what you do, um, you know, ethically. He doesn't want you to lie, but, but particularly in sexual ethics, God understands we're human. We have our needs. And, uh, and, and he loves us anyway. That's sort of moral, moral therapeutic deism. God is not the God of the Bible who sees and cares and judges. He doesn't interfere with your life, but he promises to be there for you. When you need him, he just wants you to be your best self. Uh, that, that's epidemic. Uh, I was just reading recently an article by Rod Dreher, um, and he just pointed out that moral therapeutic deism has made its way to prime time in the, uh, I guess, the latest Bachelor uh, show, where one of, the, uh, one of the ladies professes to be a Christian and yet freely acknowledges that she has sex outside of marriage, but feels no shame or fear because, quote, Jesus still loves me. And Dreher says, well, that's, that's just moral therapeutic deism. Uh, I know what, what the Bible says, but God isn't really interested in those things anymore. Um, um, she, her, her prayer, she said she prayed before the contest, and her prayer was that um, Jesus would um, help her know that she's worthy to win. Now, okay, but that's not, that's not the God of Scripture. That's, see, that's just another way of saying no God. 
that I can live my life on my terms, go my way. God is there to baptize or to help in some way, but fundamentally no God uh, that, would, that would interfere, intersect with my life in, in, uh, in a biblical way. Now, again, it'd be easy to point fingers at, at those people, wouldn't it? But David's pointing fingers at us. Um, don't you have that spirit in you? I have the no God spirit in me. Um, I know sometimes, right, there's, there's times that my, I know that my thoughts and my attitude, my actions, my words are not pleasing to the Lord, and I don't care. No God. I know I need to repent, but uh, there's no urgency. My pride, my selfishness, my laziness, my lust, my greed, it just sort of feels comfortable. It feels authentic, which of course it is, which of course is devastating. It's a no-God moment where I've just decided I'm going to take this part of my life or this this moment, and I'm just going to separate it from uh, the reality of a living God to whom I owe obedience and worship. It's utter folly. Some of you might be doing this just as a normal pattern of your life. You know there's an area of your life that God is not pleased, but you simply have come to believe that he doesn't care, uh, that, 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 that this is a no-God zone. The fool says in his heart, no God. The folly of it is, is evident right all over Scripture when, when the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God, the, the sky proclaims its handiwork. Creation is screaming. God has revealed himself in the things that he's made. The Bible says that God's put um, the knowledge of God in, he's placed eternity in your heart. Your conscience knows there's a God. So why would we insist uh, why would we insist no God? Why, why would people do this when he's revealed himself? Why, why would we um, adamantly uh, demand no, no God? Well, some of the more honest uh, people that I've, I've read on this, um, I think are absolutely right, where they, they, they show that the fool comes to this conviction not by um, evidence, but by desire. We don't want there to be a God. Thomas Nagel says this, I want atheism to be true. It's, it's, it isn't just that I don't believe in God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Now, why would you want a universe in which there was no God and all the devastating philosophical consequences of that? Well, the, the answer is simple. It's because we want to go our own way and do our own thing and live as we please. Again, Rod Dreher, another article, he was, he, he was referencing this. He just said, in my past, I kept my distance from Christianity exactly for this reason, not wanting to submit to Christian sexual morality. But I told myself that I had serious theological doubts about this or that Christian claim. I was a sophisticated self-deceiver. But my objections were deep down entirely about my refusal to accept and obey teachings that limited my options. I just love that honesty. Because when I say no God, that's exactly what it's about. I don't have evidence. I just have desire. And I have rebellion. And I want to go my own way. 
It's exactly what the fool does. And so this is the predicament of mankind. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. You see, because if, if you understand, the evidence will be you seek after God. You can't possibly understand there is a God or the truth about God and not seek him. The tense of the verb, look down, suggests this is an continual act that no matter what the fool says, no God, uh, God is present all the time. And God is looking down. He's watching to see if there are any who understand, who grasp the reality of the glory of God. And he finds there is none. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. That means worthless, defiled. That's why Paul uses the word, they become worthless in Romans chapter 3. No use to God for God's glory. There is none who does good, not even one. They do abominable things. What do people seek? Well, happiness, pleasure, money, sex, fame, reputation, comfort, security, Careers, music, sports, everything except God. Now, that doesn't mean, Psalm 53, 14, it doesn't say that, that sinners can't do anything uh, valuable in some limited sense. Plumer in his commentary says this, Many unregenerate men make great proficiency in science, in, <clears throat> in literature, in the arts of war and peace, of government and civilization. But in religious matters, in his soul's affairs, every wicked man defies every maxim of sound wisdom, every dictate of divine knowledge. Sin is as great a madness as it is a wickedness. Isn't that true? When you, when you, um, when you sin and the Spirit convicts you of your sin, it, don't you marvel not only at the, the evil of it, but the sheer sheer stupidity of it. it, it it's just, it's, it's mind-boggling. The, the utter stupidity of going our way again and expecting that there would be a different result this time. Well, that's the human condition. We're foolish people. And David, at the end of the psalm then, after he's described, right, the, 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 the folly of men and the, and the corruption and the, the abominable uh, things that people do, um, his, his last, the last verse, oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. That's exactly it. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. Lord, help us. Now, David, as he, as he writes this, his, his view is limited to Israel. You'll notice that he's, he speaks about God restoring the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Salvation for David was salvation for Israel. And so this is a prayer that God would send a Jewish Messiah to redeem the Jewish people. Israel. But David's prayer is answered in greater fashion than uh, he could have, uh, have, have imagined. I think David had a sense, 
being a child of Abraham and God promised blessings to the nations. David has a sense that this is going to expand, but, but, but doesn't see the truth of it. Remember, the disciples don't see the truth. They recognize a few Gentiles are going to make their way in, but, but haven't considered the vastness of the mercy and the grace of God. Well, Jesus was a Jewish Messiah, born of the Jewish Virgin Mary, but sent not only to make Israel glad, but to make the nations glad. And so as Paul so masterfully describes in Romans chapter 3, uh, these psalms indict all of humanity so that the mouth of everyone may be stopped. Just shut up in a sense, right? The law says you've sinned against God. You cannot fix it, fix it. Your religion is no value. Your wisdom is no help. There's none who does good. And consequently, salvation must be by grace alone, through faith alone. It has to be a free gift. And that's exactly where Paul goes in the book of Romans. You see, the, the, the wonder of the gospel, as, 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 the, as the word of God indicts humanity, the wonder of the gospel is that Jesus didn't come for the righteous. He came for the fools. He came for people like you and me who, by virtue of our sinful nature, have denied the reality of God. The incredible folly of it. People who've lived as practical atheists, we've gone our own way. We've refused to submit to the word and will of Elohim. We've said and done abominable things, things that are deeply offensive to God, things that, that are violations of his law and of his character. We've desecrated his good creation. We've done these things. You've done those things. But you see, the glory of the gospel is that God sent his son into this world not to condemn the world, but that this world, this foolish, foolish world might be saved. That Jesus died. I think of the offense of our sin. And then Jesus taking the offense of our sin. Jesus being God. Coming into a world that denies there is a God. That says no God for me. So that, so that Jesus died not just for people who broke the rules. But people who intentionally denied the reality of God. His right to be God. His right to speak into our life. His right to dictate our lives. A whole world flagrantly offending the being of God and God himself coming into that very world to take on that sin on his own, in his own body and to die the judgment that wicked, awful sin deserves so that fools can be set free. He died for the ungodly, Paul says. And, 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 and Paul in Romans chapter 3 and 4 and 5 just pounds it's not by works. can't be by works. There's no works to be offered up. People are fools. But Jesus Christ, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I believe that Jesus Christ has become for us the wisdom of God. The wisdom and righteousness and redemption of Christ is ours by faith in him. So though you are by nature a fool and I am by nature a fool and we live so often still as fools... There is a wisdom that's given to us as a free gift. Jesus is my wisdom. Jesus lived every moment saying, there is God. 
Every act, every thought, every attitude, every moment, Jesus lived in the full glorious reality of the presence and the glory of God. And in that truth, he built a life and lived a life that was perfectly pleasing to God because every part of his life was worship. It was pure from top to bottom and through and through. Not a shadow of turning, not a shadow or hint of sin as Jesus lived his life. In the truth, there is God. And then Jesus went to that cross for you and for me, the fools, so that that wisdom and that righteousness could be given as a free gift to sinners. Isn't that amazing gospel? I hope you, you, you find that to be your one and only hope, and I promise you it's mine. Don't have a chance unless there is a salvation for fools like me as a free gift found in Jesus Christ. My wisdom, my righteousness, my peace. And friend, God is calling you tonight to believe in it. Maybe you know the story, but it's been a long time since you went to that gospel and just drank of its truth and found peace and comfort for your soul. When's the last time you just confessed your folly before the Lord and ran to Jesus as your wisdom and your righteousness? And maybe you've never done that at all. And maybe tonight is the night that God is calling you to confess that you're a fool, a flat-out fool, denying the most ultimate reality in all the world, and your life is a train wreck because of it. But that you believe that Jesus Christ came into this world for fools, just like the, world said, like the Word says. And I promise you, friend, that if you will call on His name, Jesus promises you that He will hear you. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus' desire is that you will be saved. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they turn. Turn to the Lord, just as we read in our call to worship. Return to the Lord, that he may have compassion and abundantly pardon. And that's the path to joy for the church, for the nations, the gospel of a loving Savior, God himself, who came to die for fools, giving us his life, his wisdom, his righteousness, and one day perfecting us perfectly in his likeness. May that day come soon. Amen. Oh, Lord our God, we confess our folly. We've believed stupid, foolish things, and we've, we've said foolish things, and we've built lies upon deception and chosen to deceive ourselves and loved it that way. And that, Lord, in grace, you spoke your word and your truth and you showed us our need for Christ. Father, we, we thank you so much for the gospel that is for foolish people like us. I thank you, oh God, that you did not turn your back on us when we turned our back on you. But that you so loved this world that you gave your own son, that God himself took on human flesh, entering a world of fools in order to rescue them. Lord, tonight I just pray that 
we would drink again of this gospel. And Lord, if there are any here tonight who never have, I pray that they would find in this gospel light and life and joy and peace. As they surrender their life to you, the Lord Jesus, and commit themselves now to follow after him, receiving Jesus as their righteousness and peace. And Father, I pray that this truth would go with us now as we go into the week you've ordained for us, that there would be a lightness in our step, that we would know that we're forgiven and loved, that you've pardoned our folly, you've gifted us with wisdom, and his name is Jesus. And he will go with us all the way. Lord, I just pray that the the joy of that would be real and deep. The comfort of that would bring healing and hope and spiritual health. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond. And we're going to sing together, Let the nations be glad. Let the peoples rejoice. Let's sing. Thank you.